0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Teresa McPhail, who is at the Stevens Institute for Technology, and she teaches science, technology, and society, covers pretty wide remit, and also the author of a couple books. Most recently, this book called Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Also the author of this book called The Viral Network, about the H1N1 virus, its reception and the diffusion of both the virus and thinking about the virus. Welcome, Teresa.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So in this book, Allergic, I mean, It's an interesting book because it combines a bit of science and a bit of memoir and, of course, a bit of anthropology, sociology, history. It doesn't do exactly what you did in the previous book. And in the previous book, you introduced this concept of, what is it, patho...
1: Pathography, yeah.
0: Pathography. Now, I'd never heard of this term, pathography. So could you tell us a bit about pathography and how is it related to this medical anthropology that you trained in in graduate school?
1: Sure. I'm basically stealing from the medical field. So, in the medical field, pathology is obviously all the causes and what is driving your symptoms. So, if you're doing a pathography, you're looking at someone's symptomology and then you're tracing it back to its etiology and hopefully diagnosing them and treating them. And what I wanted to do is steal that term and then look at things that are making us sick globally. So to me, it made sense to think of something like the COVID pandemic or the H1N1 pandemic, which is what I wrote about, as a similar thing. So it's affecting the global bodies. So can we do the same type of thing? Can we look at the different symptoms and then track back and find out their causes and hopefully have prescriptions for what to do better, either in the moment or in the future when we're facing yet another pandemic.
0: Right. And in this book, you're studying an actual pathogen, right? Influenza virus and its impact. Right. But in allergic, you're studying something very different. I mean, it seems like, you know, humans can get sick because of a pathogen, but we can also get sick because of our responses to the pathogens. And you go through the history of how we discovered this whole notion of allergies. We've known about them since the ancient Greeks. But do you think that the advent of the germ theory kind of threw us for a loop because germ theory made us think that the source of all our problems was you know coming from without and we kind of ignored the threats from within
1: i definitely think the germ theory drove most of immunology for a long time and a lot of microbiology so our understanding of the immune system is based on our understanding of viruses and bacteria and parasites. And so for a long time, I think the thinking is that's all the immune system does. It just protects us from these organisms. And it turns out that might not be true. We don't quite understand everything our immune cells do. They interact with other cells in our body as well as with things in the environment all the time. Mostly it doesn't lead to problems. And so I think immunologists now are trying to think of different metaphors, other than just this policeman patrolling the body or thinking of it in that way, in order to do different things and understand those complexities a little bit more, because it's not the simple, oh, this is its function anymore. So I think that's opening up a big new space, but at the same time for a century, we just had that conception of it. So it's hard to get on board with the new idea that instead of being policemen, they're more curators in a museum. What gets to be part of us and what doesn't is a better metaphor than police.
0: Well, it seems like from my understanding of the immune system, I mean, there's two parts. One is this is us and this is not us. But then there's also the, sorting between the not us. Like these are the not uss that we're going to admit. <laughs> these are the not uss that we're going to kick out, right?
1: Yeah. Which is why the policeman metaphor breaks down because it's more like immigration. It's more like border patrol. <laughs>
0: it's like the red it's the red rope in front of the club, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. It's the bouncers. It's more about, yeah, what is getting to become part of us in some way, be incorporated or tolerated. There's lots of stuff that May or may not, we're like discovering how the things we didn't think were involved at all in our regulation actually have a great deal to do with how our bodies function. Look at all the new science coming online about the gut microbiome, the skin microbiome. I'd say even 50 years ago, if you told a scientist that the bacteria that live in your intestinal tract was crucial to the regulation of your immune system, they would have laughed you right out of the room. And now, if you asked any immunologist whether or not there's a link, they would tell you absolutely. So there's been a real sea change over the last, I would say, 20 to 30 years in thinking on this topic.
0: Now, we're going to have to talk a bit about what's changed over time and whether or not allergies have, in fact, increased over time. But look, they've been with us forever. And you talk about how at one point when we were trying to understand it, we kind of mixed together things like hay fever and our response to things like venom, right? And so they're very different reactions, right? They're both a consequence of some kind of invader, but they're different in a sense. And, you know, you said that the inspiration for this book came about because of what happened to your father. And, you know, you can tell us a bit about that, but this whole idea of anaphylaxis, it seems like It's hard to come up with an evolutionary rationale, and I I think you articulate why it might make sense. Like, why would it make sense? It's like shock, right? Shock is one of those things that, you know, you're like, well, that doesn't seem to work. It didn't really do what it was trying to do. So how can something like anaphylaxis actually provide some benefit?
1: Well, so my father, unfortunately, was sitting in his car when a bee flew in, stung him in the neck, which it turns out is a really bad place to get stung because you have a lot of blood flow and blood vessels in your neck going to and from your feeding your brain, basically. And so it's a good circulatory site. So the venom got everywhere in his body pretty quickly. And so his body decided, his immune cells, his bouncers, his immigration patrol said, no, no this can't be here, and turned on a system. And here's the interesting thing, though. The system that gets turned on is turned on in everything from asthma to hay fever to your cold to the underlying immune mechanisms. There are two parts of the immune system. They kind of work in concert. And it basically turns on this class of cells called mast cells, which release histamine, which is, that's what causes the shock eventually is because if you get enough histamine, histamine is a little like a nuclear reaction in the sense of once one cell sends out histamine, histamine is a signal to other cells that something's wrong. So the cell that sends it out is in some kind of trouble. And so the other cells respond by releasing their own histamine as an alert system, but also histamine does stuff in the body. So it creates mucus. So all of the coughing and the sneezing that you're and the hacking up stuff, that's on purpose to try to get something out of your system. Itch, so itchy eyes, itchy skin, it will constrict your airways. So people who have asthma will get less oxygen into their lungs, which is why it's a problem for them. And it also dilates your blood vessels, which actually is great if you need white blood cells to come and attack something. But in the case of anaphylaxis, when you're overreacting to something otherwise harmless, what that accidentally does is crash the blood flow to your heart. So you can very quickly find yourself going into cardiac arrest during anaphylaxis. But the interesting thing when I was researching this book is that the immunologists and clinicians would tell me, because I would ask, you know, why do we think of something like eczema as not an allergy or why did we for so long? And they said, well everything is the same immune mechanism turning on, but the location is different and the triggers are different. And so for a long time, we just didn't think of it as similar. And now because of our new understanding of immune function, I think more and more people are more comfortable saying, yeah, asthma is a different expression of this problem than eczema, but to say that they're unrelated is nonsensical, especially since you usually get what's called the atopic march, which is a child will develop wheeze and skin itch and food allergy in kind of a lockstep progression. And so obviously they're related. So I think that's been something really interesting that's come out of this is that even though for centuries we thought all of these things were unique, they're not really unique. They're just different expressions of the same problem. So
0: is anaphylaxis just, here we have an emergency, and it's better to overreact than underreact? And so it's just sort of a, the smoke detector goes off, and so we're going to flee the building before we verify that there's actually a fire, basically.
1: It's really sad, because it's your body's attempt to save you, except that it's accidentally maybe creating a bigger problem. And that was the evolutionary puzzle, for a lot of the scientists that I spoke to was like, why would we conserve this? Because you know, the theory is you conserve genetic code that leads to things that help you. And so how would this have ever been helpful? (laughs) And it turns out if you knock out some of these components in mice, they actually die more frequently from things like venom. So it turns out this might have had an evolutionary advantage at some point, millions of years ago, because I don't know about you, but when was the last time you were stung by a venomous snake? That would be never.
0: <laughs> you probably don't have to go back millions of years.
1: Thousands, yeah. Thousands.
0: Right? Sn- snakes and bugs and stuff, they were a big deal <laughs> not too long ago.
1: Big deal. And lest we forget, still are. Millions of people are still stung, just not here. So you're getting stung and you're getting bit by venomous insects and animals uh, all the time. It's just that for those of us in developed, westernized, urban places, not so much. And so the thinking is, yeah, that was at some point an advantage because we can see that result. Now, the argument is we're not mice. And so these are mouse models we're looking at. But, you know, the researchers were really careful and specifically looked at venom that early humans would have been exposed to. So looking in the Fertile Crescent region, what types of venom and used whole venom to see if this was a mechanism they could turn on and what effect it did have. And so that, to me, is a very plausible explanation that at some point, this system actually slowing down that blood flow would really make it so that you had time to deal with the venom so that does make sense and the other theory is just if you're getting stung you need a reason to get out of there your body will give you the feedback hey we don't like being stung by wasps let's get out of here not that did early humans need that extra thing because we didn't have the the frontal lobe that we have now who knows Because all of this is very old, like those mast cells I were talking about, they don't know exactly, but they know they're around 250 to 500 million years old.
0: Yeah. Well, in my statistics class, I actually asked people during the pandemic, which was a more likely cause of death for a young person, a young woman in her 20s with no comorbidities. And the risk of dying from bee sting was actually pretty high, you know, compared to COVID for that age group. But you also mentioned that had your father been able to lie down and not be trapped in this car in a seated position, he may very well have lived. So why is that? Is that because the body's circulation would have gone in a different way? And so is that sort of the instinct? You get stung, you should just, it's telling you like lie down and immobilize and stop doing whatever you're doing?
1: If you ever see someone, unfortunately, this is more likely in today's world, if you see someone going into anaphylaxis in the world, it's probably food. And the first thing you should do is lay them flat. Don't prop them up because it's the blood flow issue. So you need blood to get to the heart. When you crash your blood pressure, your heart is having trouble getting the flow back. And you're also having trouble breathing. So if you're lying flat, you're at least solving one of those problems temporarily and then getting an injection of adrenaline. What adrenaline does is it stops that histamine process. So the earlier you get a shot of adrenaline, the better your survival rates, which a lot of people don't know. It takes only 30 minutes for somebody to go from perfectly fine to dead on arrival at the hospital if you don't intervene in, in some way, and they have a serious anaphylactic response. So time is of the essence and doing everything you possibly can, which is something I've been talking a lot about when I'm talking about the book because that's something that's easy for people to know and can make a big difference just in the interim while we're trying to figure out the larger problem of can we help our immune systems adjust to this modern world that we're living in that clearly our immune systems are not thrilled about.
0: Well, that's why EpiPens work, right? And the the saddest part of that whole story about your father was that he was rushed to a pharmacy and the pharmacist refused to hand over the EpiPen, right? Which I don't think that would have happened today, right? I think today that would have been taken care of.
1: In most states, there are now rules and regulations that allow a certain amount of leeway. But this was 1996, and the pharmacist's hands were tied. He wasn't allowed to dole out anything without a prescription. And in the small chance that anaphylaxis can look like a heart attack. And if you give adrenaline to a heart attack patient, you're in big trouble. That's not going to go well. (laughs) And so I think there was a fear on his part of litigation, which I honestly, people often ask me, well, aren't you angry about this? And, And the answer is no, because I can put myself in that pharmacist's shoes and I can say, all right, he was making the call that he thought was best to make at that time. And the same with the ambulance didn't have it on hand. That would never happen today because... In 1996, we were just at the cusp of what we've seen really blossom into a food allergy epidemic. We've just got so many more young adults and adults out there that have these extreme responses to foods. But in 1996, that was still, it was building. You could see the rise, but we weren't there yet. And so there had been no mandates. And some companies would carry them in the ambulances and some weren't. So I guess that's really, I mean, this whole podcast is about interdisciplinarity. And that's one of the things that I found so interesting about this problem is that that's a legal problem, right? That's a political problem that had to catch up to the biological problem. And there was a gap. And unfortunately, my dad was a victim of that gap.
0: Right. And so, for instance, if you serve something in a restaurant that contains peanuts, and someone has a bad reaction, right? Where's the legal liability? It's shifting. I think it's shifting from a place where you would have to specifically inquire, right? Because you are unusual to a world where disclosure is probably going to be required. I can foresee the day. I mean, there are more and more menus, which do have kind of allergy markers, but I can foresee a day where this is going to be mandatory for labeling and in both food and in restaurant environments.
1: It already has changed food labeling laws, in fact. As I talked about in the book, there's been a need for better ingredient labeling and how you label. So instead of giving the chemical name for something like peanut or its species name, which is how they used to do it, now they have to use the most commonly used word. So instead of saying lactose, they say milk. (laughs) so that everyone's on board with what's in there. But that is new. That's fairly new. Um, Food label laws also had to catch up with what was going on in the medical world. So I don't know how we solve that exactly, because it seems to me that's always the case. Like legally, we're always catching up to new problems that are emerging. I mean, that wasn't it was. I, it's not to say that no one was having food allergies in the 1970s, but it was a lot fewer people.
0: Now, it seems like our reaction sometimes gets worse with more exposure, right? And sometimes it gets better with more exposure, right? So if you want to become capable of dealing with snake venom, right, what do you do? You go and expose yourself to snake venom. But then there are other situations where Like you talk about botanists and how botanists all wind up with allergies because they're always constantly exposed to all of these, you know, stimulants. So when I try to understand the kind of thermodynamics of allergies, it's confusing to me, right? So shouldn't more exposure educate your system and lead to less sensitivity? But sometimes it leads to more. Do we understand the mechanics of this?
1: We're starting to. It's about the dosage. So when you're talking about training the immune system, so immunotherapy for peanut or for venom, or when you get immunotherapy shots for your hay fever, what they're doing is exposing your immune system to a very minute trace amount of the thing in hopes that your cells will train, retrain themselves on this small amount. And so once they tolerate that amount, it's increased by a step. And at the end, if everything goes well and it doesn't always go well, which is one of the tricksy things because some people just don't respond to this treatment, other people respond very well, but if it does go well, a person who would have died having the smallest trace of peanut can then accidentally consume two peanuts and be relatively fine they'll still respond. It's not like their immune systems will ever be like, hooray, (laughs) peanuts. But they have learned to tolerate a greater amount of it. And they have to keep consuming that level or their bodies will revert back to thinking that it's a big problem. The problem with overexposure, so like right now more and more people are getting hay fever symptoms. People all the time come up to me and say, I never had a problem in the spring. And now I'm just desperate, you know, I can't breathe. There are days where I'm just, I look terrible. I feel terrible. I'm not sleeping. What's happening? Am I suddenly allergic? And probably you were always sensitive. But the problem is that with climate change, it's changing the flowering patterns. So plants are blooming earlier and later than they ever have. And the pollen itself is changing and becoming more potent. And there's just more of it because some of the plants are loving the increases in CO2. They're loving the nitrogen in the soil and they're producing, they're just pumping out pollen. And that is an overload. So if you look at pollen counts now versus pollen counts 20 years ago, you can actually see increases in the actual pollen. So people who were able to tolerate the amount of pollen in the air 20 years ago are suddenly now finding that their bodies are very upset about the amount of pollen in the air now.
0: Well, I guess that's a, it could be a good sign if it means reforestation or more crops. But there's also this idea that when you encounter something new, so I think that's part of what you're saying is that you get used to one thing and then things change. I know I grew up on the East Coast, and when I first came to the West Coast, I started experiencing allergies, which I'd never experienced in, in my life before. And then when I would travel away from the West Coast, they would go away. So first of all, we've got to go back to the, the data question. And I had an earlier podcast on this. Do we actually have good data on the extent to which allergies have plagued us? You talk about the alpha-gal allergy, which I find fascinating. It's hard to believe that this is a new thing. Is it just that people probably had no clue what it was? There are probably all these people who just didn't meet, didn't agree with them, but they had no idea why, right? Because ticks are not new, right? They, we've been dealing with them for millennia. So do we have any good sense of the extent to which allergies have actually increased in the last couple hundred years?
1: We do. As always, as I'm constantly telling my students in public health, good data is hard to come by no matter what you're looking at. Um, It's just a truity of the field. And there are various reasons for this, but partially it's what are you looking at? And a lot of data is self-report symptom surveys, which is not great. Because you could be dealing with different things and, you know, report that you do. Like asking someone whether or not they have a food allergy is not the best way to go about assessing food allergies in the United States. And so the data that we do have that is most convincing to me are things like prescription data. So just looking at how many people are being prescribed inhalers, getting diagnosis codes. So how many people relative to the overall population are getting diagnoses of these allergies in a physician's office and the real compelling thing is how many ER visits that's a very easy thing to count and so when you look over time you see ER visits increasing and then something interesting happens like EpiPens actually lowered the rate of hospitalizations for things like food allergies but then you look at the EpiPen prescriptions and they just rise fourfold over the last two decades. So that's a good indication that what we're seeing is a real rise because first you get those initial bumps in ER visits, but then you get the prescriptions that underlie that. Even if you then see a subsequent dip in the ER visits, you can say, well, the EpiPens are working. But, you know, we tend not to just dole those out (laughs) without cause. So it's trying to get that kind of information. So verified allergies, that data is hard, but looking at other sources, we can kind of guess. And then just when it's described in the medical literature. So yeah, we probably always had some allergies, but it doesn't become a problem until around the 1800s. That's when it starts showing up as a unique Problem in people's offices. These colds. At first, it's called summer Qatar, hay fever, because Qatar was just the word for cold. So they just thought, why are these weird people having colds all summer? (laughs) And they're otherwise fine, but they just have this cold. And that didn't really happen until the 1800s. And the theory is, which I find compelling, is that a lot of things change in the Industrial Revolution. And the mismatch seems to be we have a very old immune system, and then we have a lot of changes in the last 200 years. So we're subtracting things that our immune systems used to come into contact all the time with, like we were just discussing. We don't get bit that often. Last time I was bit, it, like stung by a wasp, was with forever ago. But then you also have new exposures that you never had before. So all of these new chemicals that we create, you know, all these new plastics. We have air pollution in the industrial revolution that did not exist in the 1600s. So you just get, and you also have changing food habits. So you're changing the diet at the same time. So people are eating more or less of things, completely changing their diets. And then the final thing that happens is we invent antibiotics. We invent pharmaceuticals. And so we're literally changing how our bodies are responding to these things. And it seems to be that all of this stuff together is really what pushes allergies up in numbers across the board.
0: But it's kind of strange because while the Industrial Revolution means that the average person's exposed to more particulates, right? More diesel fuel and more right. in- industrial stuff. The typical person is exposed to a lot less, one would think, agricultural stuff. So, I mean, is more of something and less of something both problems to some degree?
1: That's what they think. Because if you think about, imagine your immune cells as, this is going to sound like a strange example. But if I somehow took you and plunked you down in a remote region of Tibet, you'd be confused for a while, Right. You don't speak the language. You'd be like, "What is this? Is this what is this I'm eating? This is what we eat, okay? Where is my water source?" You would just be confused, and that's what we've done to our immune systems. We've taken our very old immune systems and we've plunked them down into a world that they're like, "Whoa, where are these bacteria and parasites that I'm used to getting?" Like, I've evolved to deal with these things. I'm trained on these things. Where are they? And then they're like, what is this particle? What is this? I've never had diesel fuel before, like diesel particles in my lungs before. What is this? And so it's just thinking of your immune cells as, I don't want to say they're sentient because clearly they're not, but they are sensory. And so they're not coming into contact with what used to be there, and then they're dealing with all of these new things that they have to decide whether or not it's a problem. That's the weird thing, like we can't just say, like I can't just say to my brain, hey, cut it out, oak pollen's fine. My cells are deciding whether or not they're fine. And they're deciding that based on the early training they get. So one of the most fascinating things I learned throughout the course of talking to so many researchers is that our immune systems really need this training by age three. So before, around age three is when our immune systems get set in their ways. And before that, they're pretty malleable. And so they can be exposed to tiny amounts of things and learn to cope with it fairly well. But then if you get massive changes after that, which is why you moving from one coast to the other through your immune system, because it was trained on the stuff that was around you when you were growing up. And then if you transport yourself to a new area thousands of miles away, your body has to, in essence, decide about new things with a mature immune system that isn't as flexible.
0: Yeah, so it's really information processing, right? So you have some code that's kind of hardwired, right? And, you know, like venom. But the other stuff seems to be a process of learning, right? Learning what you're supposed to react to. But this learning process, is there a way... You talked a bit about later life training through exposure therapy. But you can also develop some kind of hypersensitivities, right? I had this about five years ago. I had this bronchial infection or something, which I never went to the doctor to see. And so I was coughing for about six weeks. And then when I was done coughing, I was just, my breathing didn't work as well. And I remember going to the doctor and I went to a pulmonologist and they said, oh yeah, you've got asthma. And I said, well, what do you mean I've got asthma? And you know, like I, I I didn't have it six weeks ago, but now I've got it. And she said, well, you always had it. And I said, what do you mean I was at it? That's not my experience. She said, well, I said, can you ever just like get it? Adult onset? And she was like, no. She said, no. And then here I am in the first chapter of your book. It says, hey, sometimes you get an infection and boom, you got this asthma. So my thought was, if I can learn it, I should be able to unlearn it. And she was like, no. She's like, you either have it or you don't have it. Take these things for the rest of your life. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. That's
1: the debate. It used to be thought this was just the orthodoxy of immunology was you couldn't develop an allergy later in life. And that has kind of been turned on its head. So if you look at most of the modern research, there is adult onset food allergy. There just is. There is adult onset other types, forms of allergy. And yeah, what you always had genetically was the predisposition. So you're probably an atopic person. That's what we call people that are prone to allergies. So atopic people tend to have more mast cells. So you have more of those cells that can emit histamine. And the other thing about those mast cells is we've found that atopic people have more receptors on those mast cells for the antibody that drives most of our allergic reactions, which is called IgE. So IgE is the bouncer (laughs) that figures out oak pollen, doesn't like oak pollen, and so it's circulating looking for oak pollen. And once it finds something, it will attach itself to a mast cell and release the histamine. And so if you've got more IgE, more receptors and more mast cells, you're more likely to have a problem than someone that doesn't have a lot of, maybe they have low levels of IgE, for instance. You wouldn't expect those people to have the same problem as someone with a high level of IgE. So that's part of it. You could have been that person all along, but your body was just fine. It had been trained well, it wasn't expressing the problem And then something happens that triggers a response and then your body's like, wait a minute, we're going there. Like this is, we're gonna express this pathway that's always been a potential. That's the, like one of the things I've been trying to get across to people is those patch tests that you see or you have done like on your skin, usually on your arm, sometimes on your upper back. They're not testing for allergies, they're testing for sensitivities. So you could have a welt and have no reaction to that thing at all in real life. And it has a 50% false positive rate, which I think most of us do not know, or at least I did not know. (laughs) Yeah, it's not, right? That's a terrible. It's like a coin toss. It's no better than a coin toss. And so it's tricky because we don't really know all that much about the immune system, and we're just at the beginning of understanding, partially because we didn't have the tools to watch it before. So, if you think of all the new tech that's in labs now that allows us to attach markers, uh, you know, phosphorescent markers on things that we can literally watch a cell release histamine now, we couldn't do that in 1980. So, there was a limit to our understanding of this stuff. And so now the tools are actually. Creating more questions at this point because we're observing things that we didn't understand before. And so we're in this weird zone right now where we know more but know less, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> well, but it's weird. I mean, you mentioned that the typical doctor spends two weeks learning immunology. Now, it just boggles my mind because most of the people I know, yeah, okay, people generally die of cancer and stuff, but for the first 80 years or so, the biggest inconvenience for most people is immunological, right, (laughs) in my experience. And so why they only spend two weeks on this? This seems crazy.
1: I think it's because historically, when you look back 200 years ago when they first started talking about allergies, they believed because the people coming into their clinics were, generally speaking, white erudite, like they were all, they were not laborers, is what I'm saying. They were middle class or upper middle class. And so allergies got associated with somehow being less robust. So because they weren't out in the fields, they were developing, and they thought it was a nervous system problem at first. They actually...
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, that part of the story I found fascinating, that this was a, it was like a nervous disease.
1: Yeah. They thought it was a nervous disease. So you had a problem with your nervous system. And if you were neurotic, you were more likely to have allergies. And there was something about that association that has taken a long time to die. So we still like, and I talk about it in the book, we still, if we want to indicate that a movie character is a nerd, we give them an inhaler. And that, why? It has nothing to do with they're a weaker person. In fact, their immune system is very strong, maybe too strong. And that's why they're having the problem. But I think it's that early association as a nervous disease that we still haven't left. And so now we know that it kills people, right? So asthma can, if it's not controlled, can cause death. And so can food allergies. Eczema just makes you feel like you want to die. It's a terrible, terrible thing. If it's mild or moderate, severe, it's terrible. And so I think for a long time, people were like, oh, you're just, you have the sniffles. Boo-hoo you. And we have a small amount of money for research. And rightly, what do we spend it on? Cancer, HIV, like things that are direct and obvious threats to more, the mortality rates are up. And so for a long time, you know, when I spoke to researchers in the field, they said, oh, my God, 40 years ago, you couldn't get money to study this. Nobody wanted to give you money to study this. The exception was asthma because asthma rates were through the roof in the 60s and 70s. But if you wanted to study food allergy or eczema, you just were out of luck or hay fever. Forget it. And now I think because so many people are ending up in the ER and we are seeing people with more severe allergies, now the funding situation is much better. And so there's more research happening now than ever before. So that's great. But I think those two things go hand in hand, that we just poo-pooed it and we put our money where our mouths are.
0: But I think still, if you have asthma, they'll send you to a pulmonologist. And if you have psoriasis or whatever, they'll send you to a... Dermatologist, And I think you you said there's only, what, 8,000 immunologists in America?
1: That's correct. Yeah, it's a small field. So
0: what do you have to do to get in front of an immunologist?
1: I think we need to make it more attractive. Like a lot of the specialties people pick based on their pocketbook and on the ease. Like it's not easy to be an allergist. It's really hard to diagnose a patient. Sometimes it takes months, sometimes it takes years. And it's not a very lucrative profession. So you're making a lot more money as a cardiologist than you are as an allergist. And so I think we have to have some kind of incentive for people to go into immunology. I think people, it's a fascinating field, like the research scientists. So places like Cornell is a great example. Cornell is building, I think it's already open, a center for immunology that does something that no one else has done so far. So allergists, Cancer immunologists and immunologists working on things like the COVID vaccine are all in the same building, which facilitates cross conversations because the underlying denominator of all three of those fields is the immune system. And so if we want to get better at this, we need to be looking at the immune system from the vantage points of all of its functions and all of the things that go wrong, like autoimmune disorders And not separate them out, because then you do get that problem of people usually have multiple allergies also. So if you're seeing a pulmonologist and you also have eczema, you're going to two different like that's in some ways really inefficient. And so there's a way that maybe we can start doing this better. But institutionally, you know, I mean, path dependency is real. And once systems are set up, it's very hard to change. So Maybe, but I think it'll be a while until we see that catch up to the reality.
0: Well, will we get to a point where you could potentially just have a blood test and they would be able to identify, right, Getting like a detailed snapshot of your, I don't know, we've got the genome, we got the biome. What would this thing be? The antigenome or something where we could just get a sense of, oh, all right, these are the things that don't work well with you, right?
1: They're hopeful that might be the case because what would be great is to have diagnostics that work better than 50% of the time. You want a better than 50% false positive rate for sure. Blood serum tests are slightly better than that, but still they're just testing for the sensitivity. So there are people working on, could we have a test that shows very quickly what someone is allergic to? One of the problems is how many things we are potentially allergic to. So Most people don't realize if you're testing on grass that you have the skin test and it tests for grass, that's maybe five strains of grasses. Well, there are a lot more species of grasses than that. And so that is a hurdle that has to be overcome. And then there's another desire to have a test that would show you before you have to go through, because immunotherapy can be really grueling. Like one, you're going to the doctor's office once a week to get an updose or to get an injection. And that's for months. So that's a pain in the butt and also a lot of co-pays. And then if it doesn't work, yikes, you've spent a lot of time and money. And so one of the desires is to have a simple test that would tell you if immunotherapy would work for you. If you have a form of allergy that is amenable to being shifted or not. But right now we don't have any of that.
0: Now, the other thing that I found fascinating in the book is that you said that When you get these pollen counts, so you can check on the weather app and you can find air quality and pollen that there's no like actual, this is just a, like a random number almost. I mean, depending on what neighborhood you're in, there's no standard metric. So you could be like, why am I coughing today? I just checked the thing and it says low pollen count.
1: Correct. So the way it works is the way it worked in 1800.
0: Oh, I should, why Why not? Who needs progress?
1: <laughs> so I was shocked, honestly. This is this was one of my more mouth open moments because I went to an agency in Ohio, in Cincinnati, to learn how they do this, and and they literally do it almost exactly like the man who invented the method in 1865. So you basically coat a slide; it's a little rod in our case, and with sticky material and it flies through the air at regular intervals throughout the day. And the stuff in the air sticks to that. And then they take it off and go down to their microscope and spend two or three hours counting by hand how many pollen they see which requires skill, obviously. Like they had me try to do it and I was just terrible at it because- This
0: sounds like a job for machine learning, just saying.
1: Yeah, that's the question. Can we get an AI to do this for us? I think we probably can because we're seeing big advances in things like radiology with AI. So I don't see why we couldn't turn it to this. Part of the problem is pollens basically look a lot alike, especially within the same species. So if you've got different oak trees, for instance, their pollen will look very similar. And so telling, you know, if you've got a Chinese elm versus a normal elm, that can be
0: difficult. But they don't release the number based on different species. They just give you like a a number, right? They just
1: give you the flat count. So they'll say tree pollen is high today. And that tree pollen could be elm. It could be oak. It could be maple. You don't know what type of tree you're dealing with. Some of Cincinnati actually, because they have great people there, they actually do have as you can go and see oh elm is high specifically for that reason so that people trying to figure it out can better figure it out but most places know you don't know what grasses they're looking at and human error is obviously possible in that situation and it's not the best method but it's there's another system that's considered better but it's still not fully automated so we're still using it uses a very similar method and we're never up to date. So whatever pollen level you're looking at in the paper on Thursday morning is actually Wednesday's pollen. So that is also a problem because pollen levels can change day to day. So you might think it's a high day and actually that day is very low, but there's no way of knowing that in real time right now.
0: So if we're trying to figure out which interventions will give us the biggest kind of bang for buck in terms of reducing allergies, you mentioned a couple. Are they medical or are they public health oriented? Should we think, take an epidemiological approach? Is it prevention versus cure? Regulating air quality, giving people early exposure, maybe controlling antibiotic usage. And then, of course, the medical solutions. I mean, think thing about medical solutions is that there's money to be made in medical solutions. There's not, not a lot of money to be made in, you know, banning diesel fuel or something like that. So what are some of the interventions that you think are going to make the biggest difference?
1: I mean, easier solutions is paying attention to particulate levels. Like right now, we don't really measure under 2.5 ums, which is very small. It's possible to measure them. It's not that we can't, it's that we don't. So we could easily start to do that because they are a direct cause of asthma. Like you can just look at where a kid grew up and predict their asthma risk. It's completely synonymous. So we could easily do that. Well, not easily, but it's something that we can have a a metric about. It's measurable. We know how to clean up air. So we could try to do that. We can pay attention to how we go about early childcare. So we can try to educate parents And it's sad because for years we told parents not to give kids allergenic foods until age three, and that was exactly the wrong advice. So now we need to retrain parents to like give small amounts of different types of food early on to look for reactions, which can be quite scary because they may have already a sensitivity and that's scary, but it's better to know it younger and also possibly be avoiding developing those stronger reactions by giving those smaller doses when they're young. So that's something we can easily do. We can rethink antibiotic use. That's tricky, though, because we've found that if you give repeated doses of antibiotics to small children, so under the age of two, it dramatically increases their risk of developing eczema allergy and asthma. But that being said, you can't let A child's ear infection go uncontrolled either. And so it's really trying to, if we could do better on knowing quickly whether or not something was a bacteria or a virus, that would be great Uh, for multiple reasons. That would also help us with antibiotic resistance. So if we're only giving antibiotics to people who have a bacterial infection, and there's a quick way that we could know the strain so we could give the right antibiotic, instead of giving them two or three different antibiotics when it turns out they're resistant, that would solve two problems with one intervention. So I think that is something we can start thinking about. And then just changing the way we think about microbes. So again, to go back to your question or your comment, which was so on point about the germ theory, we take it for granted that everything's bad. Bacteria bad, viruses, bad. And it turns out, not really. Some of that bacteria and some of those viruses are actually helpful and we need them to function appropriately. And so I don't know about you, but I have friends that are just a little bit too happy with the Lysol. They're just Lysoling everything. And that we have to cut back on that. This idea that we're wiping out 99.9% of everything around us is actually part of the problem. And I understand, like, yeah, do I want cholera? No, of course not. People are always like, well, but they're a terrible thing, sure. But they're also, where an antibiotic or an antiseptic wipes out everything. It doesn't go, oh, that's a good bacteria. Let's leave that one alone. So we really have to be careful about what we're killing and when and why.
0: So it's like carpet bombing and not precision bombing. Well, particularly post pandemic, people became very obsessed with cleanliness. Now, in your book, The Viral Network, I do want to make sure you say a few things about this because this it was written, of course, before the COVID pandemic. And so I, I'm sure that while that was unfolding, you were uh, seeing a lot of things that looked familiar to you. And the, the H1N1 came after the SARS, right? And so it activated a public health immune system, right, that had been trained on SARS. And same thing with the COVID, right? So COVID, in a way, it activated this response, which was trained on previous pathogens.
1: Primarily flu. Primarily flu.
0: Yeah. So everyone was thinking about the flu. Everyone was thinking about the flu. And then we get this COVID. How do we develop a more intelligent kind of societal immune system to these pathogens?
1: That is such a complicated and difficult to answer question. I've been thinking about this for years because it seems like we repeat the same mistakes, which is we prepare the next pandemic based on the last pandemic, knowing full well that we don't know what the next one will look like. We don't know. We assume it'll be airborne, but what if it's not? Those kind of questions matter to what kind of things you have ready to go. And it's difficult because everybody had what they call their pan flu plan, their pandemic influenza plan. Every nation has one. Most cities have one. It's the most robust planning based on the worst case scenario, bird flu with killing like 25 to 30% of people in effects. So
0: 1918, right? 1918 Redux,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, really bad news. And so the problem with that is it, you know, it sets up chain of command and it sets up certain things that everyone has to do. But one of the things I saw during the H1N1 that happened again in COVID is that when the thing happening doesn't match the plan, There's nervousness about how much leeway you have because the chain of command is there and the mechanisms are there, but it's like you're turning on a machine that only does one thing. And then everyone's scrambling to figure out how to make that machine do something slightly different.
0: So like contact tracing, the contact tracing was a complete waste of resources in the United States, right?
1: Yeah, and we didn't have, I mean, there was some initial fumbling of tests, available tests, and whether or not the tests were accurate. And so, luckily, we had people going rogue. So, I don't know if you remember this, but we had people at the University of Washington in Seattle creating their own tests that were very effective. And so, they got ahead of it a little bit. But that was not sanctioned. (laughs) They went rogue. And that was a decision they made based on the seriousness of the threat. But that kind of negotiation, I think it turns out differently depending on where you are and who's in charge. And the CDC didn't really get ahead of it the way they should have because they are mired in bureaucracy because they're a federal agency and, you know, they're directly under HHS and a little bit of uh, DOD, DARPA has a say in these pandemic situations, and the leadership of the CDC changes every time the president does. And maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Maybe we should have consistent leadership so that there is institutional memory. I think as an anthropologist, the best responses are always from the people who have been in a response before because they have a Rolodex of plays and what worked and what didn't work. They also have good working relationships, usually internationally. So they, given enough leeway, they can figure it out. It's always the tension between the plans and what is actually happening and what people feel they have um, the leeway to actually do in the moment. Because you would hope that people weren't covering their own katukus but that's what ends up happening is there's always people thinking, well, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And so they're trying to negotiate the politics at the same time as they're trying to figure out the science. And if we could somehow separate those a little bit more, it would be great. Is that feasible? I don't know. But we need a more universal response that's not tailored. I mean, that's basically what I was arguing in the book. It's that we had focused too much on flu and it left us vulnerable. And I think that played out.
0: Are there any lessons that we can learn from the human immune system that could be applied to our societal immune system, right? In terms of the system underreacts sometimes, it overreacts sometimes. We have these in the acquired immune system, we remember, but we keep the response on reserve, but we have the capacity to ramp it up when needed. But then it also, there's a bunch of false alarms. Can we learn from what our immune system does well, but also learn from what it does poorly?
1: I think yes, because one of the things the immune system does well is it's an all hands on deck response. So like I said, those mechanisms are basic mechanisms that we can always do. And certainly any public health professional can tell you there are certain things that we should always do. No matter what the threat is in the initial days, we should X and just have those be part of the universal response. And then we can track back, so maybe we automatically close schools. No debate, they're just closed for two weeks. And then when we get more information about the actual threat, if that's not necessary, we send them right back. But certain things we know work for certain, that always works for respiratory. So. If we think through like, okay, what if it's waterborne? What if it's foodborne? What if it's air contact droplets? We can have certain things that work in all of those things and just have them ready to go. And building in capacity is great. One of the problems was, as you know, not enough respirators anywhere. Like we were just overwhelmed with a desire and a need to have more respirators available and they weren't. They're very expensive though. So what do we do? I think we just need to have some flexibility and some oversupply ready. And yeah, that's a sunk cost in a way. Like you're going to just have respirators sitting there. Good. We should waste money like that. (laughs) If we're going to waste money, that's how I want to waste it.
0: (laughs) Well, it's like sprinklers in your house, right? Hopefully you never use them. But it seems like in the pandemic, there wasn't enough early investment in just understanding the enemy, right? Six months in, they were still debating over Large or small particulates, fomite or non I mean, it, this seems like stuff that if you really made that your priority, you, you, know, you get the answers to most of these questions through some experimentation.
1: It does take time, though. I mean, that's the thing is I think just across the board, most of us don't understand how science works in real time. And we know they are constantly gathering data, but like an N of 30, it can tell you something. But it's not going to tell you what the end of 30,000 tells you. And there's a real time problem here because you're never going to have the data you need when you need it. And so you're always forecasting based on the data that you have. And so my thing is to let people go a little bit more with their gut. Because from my perspective, I actually was lucky enough to be inside the CDC when some of this was going down and people had a sense for what this was like a lot of people knew it wasn't going to be that serious, much quicker than the official response tamped down. So if you just give those people a little bit more leeway and are they going to be wrong sometimes? Yes, they are going to be wrong sometimes. But that's one of the hazards of this, is that we need to have uh, capacity to respond. I'd rather us overreact than underreact, quite frankly. Have a system where you can shut off the machinery, though. I mean, the problem with COVID and with flu was how do we decide when a pandemic is over? There's mechanisms to put in place to decide when a pandemic is starting. There's a whole list of if these things, then we turn on the pandemic machinery nothing about when to shut it off. Maybe we should spend some time there, thinking about what are the signals that we stop? Because no one wants to stop in the moment because they don't want to be politically responsible for stopping too soon.
0: So you pre-commit to a metric, that you know, and then-
1: Yeah, pre-commit to a metric. And then have it be flexible. So have the plan, but then build in some sort of flexibility and resiliency And I think it would go a long way to helping us be prepared for, it's inevitable. People always ask me, do you lose sleep at night? And I say yes and no. Are we gonna have another pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's just a matter of time, but we don't know what it looks like. So we should spend in between the times where we're dealing with something like COVID, looking at what went wrong and then trying to figure out universal fixes that we can have in place that don't depend on what pathogen it is, because we will not know. We think we know. But like SARS came out of nowhere. No one saw it coming. Everyone then got focused on bird flu. And then here we have another SARS. And it's weird because we had a SARS, but we weren't tracking them the way we track influenza. And that was, in hindsight, a major mistake. But you can't track everything. So it's like, How do you do surveillance in a way that's not pathogen dependent? Like, how do you do a general what's out there in different types of animal reservoirs, in different types of human reservoirs, not just going out saying, "Okay, we're going to look for flu today, because then you're going to ignore everything else you find. And clearly, that was not what we should be doing. So it's an intractable problem. It's a tough problem. But I think there are some things we can do. And I think having people training in mixed generational situations, like I'm a big proponent of having mixed generation teams. So you always have someone there with institutional knowledge and context. Because if you've never seen Ebola before, you're not gonna know how to respond. Someone in that room who's been through three ebolas is going to be invaluable to that team. And so trying to get newer people up to speed more quickly, I think, makes us want to be more interdisciplinary and makes us want to be more intergenerational. And I think we don't think about the generation part as much as we do the discipline part.
0: Well, and it can't hurt to have an anthropologist on board. <laughs> to put one of those on every team. Yeah, so Teresa, thanks so much for joining me. The, the new book is called Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. We'll talk again soon.
1: Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.